This episode includes brief descriptions of violence and references to slavery, so please take care while listening. In Hervé Telemach's painting untitled The Ugly American from 1962, a battle is waging. Pink-faced, blonde creatures, jaws open wide, yell stop across the canvas at a small group pinned in the corner. Rendered only in outline, with a few choice colors, are two familiar figures. Toussaint Louverture, the hero of the Haitian Revolution, is recognizable in the gross figuration as a black face topped with a bright red three-corner hat. Next to him is the unmistakable black beard and green shirt of Fidel Castro. Telemach's work is a nod to the multiple revolutions that defined his life, through the creation of new countries, new political systems, and new ways of being. In examining his work, one is reminded, to paraphrase Marx, that the revolution is ongoing. The revolution is never done. It's 1802 in the early days of the Haitian Revolution, and chaos reigns in the verdant Cahos Mountains. The Haitian rebels are trapped in their own fort, besieged by French forces. The French are closing in, preparing to strike the final blow, when they hear a shocking sound from the fort. The Haitian soldiers are singing songs of the French Revolution, an uprising that shocked Europe with its demands for liberté, égalité, fraternité. Only a few short years later, the Haitians are asking, what is French liberty to us when we still have to demand our own freedom at the point of a sword? Anyone who knows Haiti knows the saying, Deyemon, Gehmon, meaning beyond mountains, more mountains. To this we might add, behind a revolution, more revolution. And this revolution would change the dynamics of power in the Caribbean and beyond forever. Welcome back to season four of Tomorrow is the Problem, an ICA Miami Art and Research Center podcast. I'm your host, Donna Honarpiche. This season, we foreground Haiti's influence on Miami, the city that ICA calls home, by exploring and engaging with the Haitian communities in close proximity to the museum. As we host Haitian artists within the walls of the ICA and explore our own role as curators and neighbors to these communities, we look outward to the political, cultural, and aesthetic worlds that inform artistic practices and inward to our own identities and questions. Today, we're diving into an epic revolt that created a new state free from enslavement while keeping in mind that the enormous cost of this freedom is still felt today. The Haitian Revolution was a radical recentering of Black voices and ideas, which shook Europe and its colonies to their core, according to Trinidadian writer C.L.R. James's seminal book, The Black Jacobins. James says that the French, revolutionary as they believe themselves to be, could never truly grasp the depths of Haitians' quest for freedom, and he writes, rivers of blood would flow before they understood.
Picture yourself on a sandy shore, watching a ship blown into harbor by a strong breeze. But this is no tropical paradise. The people on this ship have already survived the torture of the Middle Passage. Their new enslaved labor bound for the malarial sugarcane fields. This is colonial Saint-Domingue, soon to be known as Haiti. So Saint-Domingue was the most profitable, the kind of most important colony, actually, in the French Americas. And by the middle and the late 18th century, it is a place covered with many sugar plantations that are worked by enslaved people from Africa, producing sugar for export to France and then to European markets. This is Laurent Dubois, professor of history at the University of Virginia and the author of, among other books, A Colony of Citizens, Revolution and Slave Emancipation in the French Caribbean and Haiti, Aftershocks of History. So it's, it's a really focused plantation system, a quite brutal society in which you have a small number of, of whites kind of controlling this much, much larger group of mostly enslaved people of African descent for the production of these commodities for export to Europe. In Saint-Domingue, people slept at the foot of the Vesivius. That's according to 18th century writer Count Mirabeau. Sure enough, the island exploded in 1791, when enslaved people rose up en masse to rid themselves of French colonial rule. The Haitian Revolution was the first and only slave uprising that created a new state after 13 bloody years of rebellion. The leaders of the rebellion, Toussaint Louverture and Jean-Jacques Dessalines, were united in their fight for Haitian independence, though some may say they differed on the shape the independent nation would take. Dessalines is the father of the nation, but Toussaint is seen as this man who broke the system. Toussaint is seen as this individual who opens the breach. He straddles world history. There is no doubt about that. This is Anthony Boggs, professor at Brown University and director of the Center for the Study of Slavery and Justice. We'll hear more from him later in the episode. Dessalines was clear about independence in a way that I think is absolutely striking. The army that he led was called the Indigenous Army. Why? Because I think he understood politically and at a deep philosophical way, quite frankly, that the first inhabitants of the island of Sandomar, Hispaniola, were Indigenous people. The country is renamed Haiti because that's the name given to it by the indigenous population. Dessalines, by overthrowing the colonial system, not just overthrows it politically, but attempts to overthrow it epistemically by renaming things. The newly named nation of Haiti now had two models of leadership which some scholars frame as Dessalines' radical isolationism versus Louverture's more conciliatory approach to building global ties. But Dubois thinks these philosophical differences are exaggerated in modern scholarship. Both leaders fought the same battle for independence, after all. There's a way in which sometimes that they're seen as a kind of dichotomy, like Louverture and Dessalines are, are very different, and I think they are more similar than sometimes people imagine. 
they do have different stories to begin with. They're both born enslaved, but Louverture was free before the revolution began. Nevertheless, both of them really kind of join together and they fight alongside one another throughout this period. And they become kind of leaders in this new military elite that emerges first from an insurrection. I think they, they had a lot in common in terms of their vision, which at the end of the day was founded on the basis was to kind of protect that freedom that had been won at all costs. In the contemporary 20th century landscape, they sometimes become figures of sort of opposing political ideologies, one more about compromise with the outside world and one more a kind of unflinching defender of sovereignty. They become kind of coded in certain ways that the history itself is often more complex than that. Along with these leadership complications, Haiti was feeling what Dubois calls the aftershocks of history. Having broken the chains of colonial rule, the nation faced systemic challenges from without and within. There's a couple of different really deep conflicts that that all emerge from the fact that Haiti is founded by the overthrow of plantation slavery, a system that continues to dominate the economic world all around it, right? So it's a system in the rest of the Caribbean and much of Latin America and North America. So they kind of emerge as a threat, in a sense, to this economic system that's dominant at the time. So on the one hand, what you have is a long history of kind of external hostility and, and kind of response to Haiti that, that attempts to isolate it, that um, there's actually a desire in some ways to kind of crush that revolution. Eventually, uh, the French kind of negotiate the payment of an indemnity before they recognize Haiti that has a huge influence on Haiti. Framing the Haitian Revolution not as an anti-colonial struggle for national sovereignty and human rights, but as a monetary loss for the colonists, France demanded reparations for their slaveholders. The new nation was forced to pay back $21 billion in today's dollars, a debt they didn't clear until 1947, and which crippled the development of Haiti's economy. But there's also a deep internal conflict that emerges from this revolution, which really revolves around the question of what freedom is and how how people will express and kind of live the freedom they've won. And it's essentially a conflict between a model that some elites and leaders in Haiti continue to have, which is that Haiti should continue to be a plantation space. But then through the Haitian Revolution, you have the emergence of a totally different model. And that is structured around sort of ownership of land, a small-scale agriculture, markets, a sort of life that is not aimed at kind of producing commodities for other people, but at producing a kind of true life for the Haitians themselves. And it's the latter model that actually really takes over much of Haitian rural society. But the plantation model is continued and maintained by the elites in, in some ways in collaboration with foreign with foreign merchants and with foreign powers. And that conflict, I think, is, you know, in, at the heart of, of everything we see in Haitian politics since then, along with the kind of constraints and external forces. And those two kind of combine in many ways. But really throughout Haitian history, you see, I think, those deep conflicts that emerge from the revolution continue really to this day to shape, shape the political questions and problems in Haiti. The effects of these deep conflicts have rippled out through space and time, even crossing the Caribbean Sea to the shores of Florida. Seeking economic or political freedom from the 1970s on, thousands of Haitians have left their homeland and settled in Miami. The long arc of history was on our minds when we spoke with Haitian-American writer Edwidge Danticat in season one for our episode on transoceanic relations. 
She unpacked the ways in which states construct the rhetorical crisis of mass migration, a practice rooted in white supremacy and colonial ideologies. She connected Haiti's past and present across water and time. Our ancestors left us, you know, imprints of ways to connect all of this. So Haitian Creole, for example, if you say that someone is Lot Bordeaux, on the other side of the water, you can either mean that they have migrated or that they have died. And so for me, when I think of even the disbursement of, of our ancestors, you know, throughout the African diaspora with our emerging, you know, differences based on where we landed, but also our similarities and how that feels like finding a relative across time. Because I think, I think part of the, the emotional resonance of it is that then you feel like, oh, they didn't take everything away from us. They didn't just divide us completely with languages and locations and all these tools. But there's still something that's sort of unbreakable in our ties. Progressive waves of Haitian immigration have left an indelible mark on the culture of the city showing again the long reach of the revolution and its aftershocks. We'll take a deeper look at Little Haiti, which is just a few blocks away from the ICA, in our next episode. There is a dilemma of tragic choice that Toussaint was faced with. Either on the one hand, a Saint-Domingue without France, or a Haiti returned to enslavement. In many kinds of historical situations, leaders like Toussaint are faced with choices between which it is virtually impossible to adequately, seamlessly make a worthy choice. This is David Scott, the chair of the anthropology department at Columbia University, founder and editor of Small Axe and director of the Small Axe Project. Scott grew up in Jamaica, in the long shadow of the Haitian Revolution, in an era when Caribbean revolutionary politics appeared to be fraying at the edges. Scott's work is particularly interested in the ways historical and literary narratives shape how we relate to the past, and how history can be transformed through the conditions of the present. When we talked to him, he explained that the Caribbean society he grew up in in the 1990s seemed to have a more complicated relationship to the Haitian Revolution's ideals. Maybe, he began to think, a conclusive narrative of revolution wasn't possible after all. We all live with the sense of what James called, after Hegel, the future in the present. But it seemed to me at the end of the 1990s that we no longer lived in such a moment and that we could no longer tell ourselves the story of the past of slave domination in such a way as to guarantee a revolutionary future that made it very difficult to be able to persuade oneself that there was a guaranteed revolutionary future through which we could narrate the story of our past. It's that sense of doubt 
that I sought to articulate in thinking about the way in which James tells the story of the great Haitian revolution in the Black Jacobins. The Black Jacobins by C.L.R. James is considered a classic of Caribbean historical analysis. Writing in the 1930s as an avowed Marxist, James centered the Black Haitian revolutionaries as creators of their own destinies and as compelling actors on the world stage. Here's Boggs again. The fervor, the lucidity of Black Jacobins is deeply connected to this drive for anti-colonialism, this drive for political independence. And in James's case, it is also deeply connected to a certain kind of vindicationism. In other words, to prove that Black folks had revolutionary history as well. That's really important. Because the argument would have been in the 1930s, or some Marxist brother would have it, that the anti-colonial revolution would have been subsidiary to the proletarian revolution in Western Europe. And so what James, I think, was trying to do in the Black Jacobins is to show that there is a revolutionary history of Black people that has to be taken into consideration. And that is what is driving the text. And James in the Black Jacobins tell the story of the Haitian Revolution as a great epic narrative, as a story that is informed by an idea of subjugation and domination that over time across the great arc of struggle arrives at the new day of the Haitian Revolution. That's partly what makes the Black Jacobins such a magnificent historical text. James had a very complicated understanding of historical narrative, and in particular, the relationship between history and literature and the narrative forms through which one tells the story of the, of the past and possible future in the present. In fact, James reframed his own work over the course of the 20th century, though always with a Marxist lens. In his 1963 edition, he included an appendix, From Toussaint Louverture to Fidel Castro, where he argued that the Cuban Revolution was the ideological child of the Haitian struggle for independence. Reading James's work today, David Scott is interested in the way we frame stories for ourselves. Do we crave an epic narrative with good and evil clearly defined and a chronological and happy ending? Or can we live with uncertainty in our narratives, with what he calls a tragic impasse, where the revolutions may not have given us all that we'd hoped? Revolution provides us with, in many respects, a cacophony of action, a chaos of action in which political actors, however virtuous they may be, are never completely masters of their circumstances and indeed never completely masters of themselves. The idea of the tragic for me is helpful in trying to constrain a particular mode of revolutionary storytelling and is a way of constraining 
the overarching self-confidence that political actors often portray of knowing with a sense of certainty the virtue of the, their political engagement, the sense of the absolute confidence in its success, and so forth. This nuance is important to Scott as a way to understand the present moment with its particular political upheavals, as well as framing the past. In fact, it's the generosity of James's historical framing that encourages Scott to return to the text of the Black Jacobins as a continual point of reference. And James says to us that had the book been written in other circumstances, it might have been a very different book. So James is alert to the present circumstances in which the book is written and therefore has a sense that the kind of story that he's telling is keyed very much to a particular conjuncture. It's a text that is given to one as a kind of master text of the world in which we grow up. Therefore, each generation, in a certain sense, has to puzzle over how to position and reposition a text whose present is not theirs in a way that illuminates their own lives. These are texts that, in some sense, are our inheritance, if you like. And in trying to connect them to our present, we have, I think, to carry out an excavation, an interpretive excavation, The enduring power of texts like C.L.R. James's Black Jacobins show that the symbols of the Haitian Revolution are not merely imagery, but in fact carry a great cultural weight. They are forces that hold questions from the past up to the light of the present. In the ongoing story of Haiti's fight for sovereignty, these symbols are potent reminders of the revolution's perpetual potential. There's actually a man who goes to, to protests on horseback dressed as Dessalines. Given how often Haitian sovereignty has been attacked, has been undermined and weakened by various forces, internal and external, it's a very potent symbol because it's kind of a reminder that at the core of Haiti is this unfinished, un, you know, kind of struggle to, to be truly sovereign, to have true control over the destiny of the country. And it's almost a way of saying, you know, we need to live up to what he was kind of trying to create and has never been, maybe, maybe never been fulfilled. In trying to understand our present moment, we must return to the past, as well as the literary and historical ways of narrating that past. David Scott suggests that this historical excavation requires a re-examination of what we thought we knew, and in the case of Haiti, this may call for an archaeological dig that brings many pasts to light at once. My own take on this is that the Haitian Revolution is a dual revolution, that it is not a single revolution, that it is a revolution, firstly, led by Toussaint Louverture and the Revolutionary Army of enslaved people, significantly made up of Maroons, and that Toussaint leads a slave revolution, an anti-slavery revolution, and that the second revolution is led by... Jacques Dessalines, and is a revolution for political independence. So I think in terms of conceptually framing the revolution, it is important for us 
not to see this revolution as a seamless historical process, but actually to see the revolution as having two distinct political, social, economic currents, and that they lead to two distinctive processes. This is Anthony Boggs again. He explains that the split nature of the revolution, as well as years of outside intervention, has led to fractures within Haitian society and politics. The internal and external stressors, debt, class conflict, threats of invasion that plagued Haiti's early years have evolved rather than disappearing. We are at a moment where Haitian society is in deep crisis where the fragmentation of sovereignty that has itself been uh, fragmented into many different tributaries. All revolutions raise fundamental questions. They don't necessarily solve them, eh? but once the revolution is in motion, then it opens uh, new questions for us. The Haitian Revolution opened up the question of freedom in ways that the French Revolution and the American did not. However, he cautions, these fractures shouldn't lead to a wholesale dismissal of the Haitian Revolution's ideals. In fact, the questions raised by the revolution are just as vital as ever, not only for the descendants of the revolutionaries, but for those of us who have benefited from it without being aware. An imperfect revolution can still change the world. Could there be freedom without profound social equality? The revolution opens, explodes horizons for people at that moment about the horizons of possibility about human life. And so I would want to suggest, therefore, that dual Haitian revolution, because it tackles the most fundamental questions of the day, which are racial slavery and colonialism, that then it explodes the horizons of those who are making the revolution. And that that is the story that we need to tell. As Boggs suggests, the radical possibilities presented by the Haitian Revolution are complicated by realities on the ground especially as time progresses. Here's Dantecat again. For a lot of people, Haiti now is a place that won't let them stay. And more and more, the other ways that you could leave have been shut up to many people. You know, the U.S. is deporting people. The Dominican Republic is building a wall. You know, Chile also has deported people. These places that before the pandemic, you know, during a certain time were asking people to come in, those opportunities are getting increasingly harder to come by. So then the sea becomes this the space of migration. And, you know, there's a Haitian expression about difficulty. It says, Naji Pusoti, you know, you swim to get out. And it's meant often to, it's been used politically, you know, by a former president who used to say it all the time. But it's almost meant to convey uh, like extraordinary difficulty, like because... It's assuming, in a way, while you're saying nager pour sortir, that a lot of the people can't, not nager, can't swim. Faced with impossible options, many Haitians have left the island to seek better lives abroad. This begs the question, how is the revolution being kept alive in the diaspora? If the revolution leaves Haiti, where does it go? 
In Hervé Telemach's semi-abstract 1960 painting Toussaint Louverture in New York, Telemach transports the revolutionary hero dressed in his gallant red military coat to the segregated streets of New York, linking the Haitian Revolution with the American Civil Rights Movement. Louverture is visible only in profile, making him difficult to read. One wonders what he would make of America in 1960 or in 2023. In the background is a brightly colored Haitian mailbox with its distinctive red top and blue body. This begs the question, what messages are being passed through this mailbox? What would Louverture say in a letter home to his beloved Haiti? Join us next time to explore the ways artists and writers are imagining alternative futures for Haiti. Tomorrow is the Problem is produced in partnership with Podfly Productions. This episode was written and produced by Thea Piltzecker and me, Donna Honarviche, in collaboration with Wilkin Brutus. Our executive producer is Jocelyn Aram. Our recording engineer is Carly Reem-Neal. Our sound designer is Nina Pollock. Special thanks to Laurent Dubois, David Scott, and Anthony Box for joining us on the show, and to Edwidge Dantecat for joining us last season. The music for this episode includes the Creole version of the Haitian national anthem, La Desalignan, La Marseillaise, the colonial Williamsburg FIFA and drums, Aka Ira, and the Haitian troubadours, Aïti Chéri. I'm Donna Honarpiche. Thanks for listening. <laughs>